glad nobody asked who Andy was. Andy walks with me, Andy talks with me. Sure, we, we learned that in Bible school. That was my question. I came home one day from Bible vacation Bible school and I said to mother, Who's Andy? We kept talking about Andy all day. <laughs> so I think that's that's a favorite joke of everybody. Um, let us pray. Jesus, as we gather today to learn about you, we ask that you meet us here. May the lesson taught help to instill righteousness in us, prepare our minds to hear and heed your word, and fill our hearts with the longing for you and your holy word. Bless Phil as he brings this lesson today. May your presence be known to those who struggle with the ravages of war, weather, hunger, and political unrest even in our nation. Comfort those who are grieving and heal those who are ill. And we think especially of the Wayne Anderson family. Strengthen us to be examples of your love to all in the week ahead. Amen. Good morning. Time change, yes. You are good to be here. And it seemed to me appropriate to give you special dispensation today. Um, not only are you here an hour earlier, but we didn't have coffee in the back. So that means if you, if you find yourself nodding off today, uh, Coffee downstairs. So, there's coffee downstairs if you need it. You need to fortify yourself. Now's the time. But uh, I promise we won't uh, embarrass you. Just you just go ahead and nod off. You probably you probably need that um, more than anything I'm going to say. So just you just go ahead and take your nap. It'll be fine. We're in a short, believe it or not, a short series of lessons. That's, uh, yeah. Um, in the, for the rest of Lent, um, we started last week, we're just reflecting just a little on uh, a few of what the church has called for about 1,500 years um, the penitential psalms. There are seven psalms uh, out of the 150 uh, that the church is sort of set aside for special use during the Lenten season especially. And uh, they focus on um, what you think you would focus on in Lent. Uh, and that is our, our crying out to God uh, for God's, God's help, for God's uh, forgiveness, for God's, for God's care. And so last week we looked at Psalm 130. Uh, which may be one of the more familiar psalms. Um, today we're going to look at the first of the penitential psalms, uh, which is Psalm 6. 
So if you have your Bible um, or your phone uh, or, or whatever, and you want to pull that up, uh, we're going to be in Psalm 6 today. And I, I said a little bit in general last week uh, about the penitential psalms, particularly as forms of lament, because all of the penitential psalms are a particular kind of psalm. There are, are lots of different kinds of psalms. Uh, there are so-called royal psalms that were written for uh, probably special occasions uh, for the, the king of Israel um, and thanksgiving for God's ordering of uh, the nation. Uh, there are psalms of thanksgiving and praise. Um, some of the most disturbing psalms, uh, ones that you'll not likely hear in church, um, are what are sometimes called the imprecatory psalms. Yeah, and the reason, the reason we call them that, because if we called them what they were really called, it'd be even more disturbing, right? Um, they're also called the cursing psalms, right? That's what imprecatory means. No charge for that this morning. Okay? Now you know why we call the, the imprecatory psalms, because who wants to say, today we're reading the cursing psalms. Uh, we're going to be cursing our enemies today in front of God. Um, so we don't generally use those in, um, in church. Those are for private use. Um, but what they reveal, and, and then there, there are the laments, which are, of all the, the sort of genres or categories of the Psalms, are, are the largest uh, single set of Psalms. They're concentrated in the first half of the Psalter, from about 1 to 72, uh, sometimes known particularly as the Psalms of David. And these, these laments, like the cursing psalms, are instructive for us because, as we said last week, they remind us of the, the way in which God invites us, in ways that surprise us, to bring everything that we feel before God. That you don't have to clean it up. Um, you don't have to censor it. You don't have to uh, somehow you know, run it through the wash and the dryer three or four times in order to make it acceptable before God. These are really raw in many cases in ways that, that kind of embarrass us in some ways, if, if not shock us. We think, I just don't know that I, I want to say that in church. And so it's true that in the way the Psalter is used in the liturgy um, is, is pretty sanitized for the most part, if we're honest. If, you, if you've read through the entire Psalter, you'll realize that in, uh, if you follow the regular liturgy weekly readings for Sunday uh, in the Methodist Church, the Presbyterian Church, the Catholic Church, all of them. It's a pretty sanitized view of the Psalter, which really is to our detriment, right? Because that there are times when we actually feel some pretty strong things 
Um, and th those emotions, everything from rage and anger and fear and panic, God created us to have the capacity to feel those things. Okay? And what we all know true is also true is it, it's, it's not a surprise to God that we're feeling these things. This is one of the interesting things. At one level, we all know this is true. And yet we still feel this hesitancy to bring some of these rawest emotions to God. But the Lord laments by, by being a kind of psalm that's in the Psalter, by being in the canon of Scripture, gives us permission Right? Gives us permission uh, in a kind of extraordinary way. And it's interesting. There, there's really, when you come to the laments and you see the kind of uh, impoliteness of them, the kind of boldness, there's really nothing, uh, scholars say there's nothing like this in any kind of ancient literature where a people address directly to God these complaints these laments. In some ways that sound, I mean, yeah, we would say, ooh, I can't believe they said that. Mm -hmm. Let me give you a couple examples just so you know I'm not making this up. <laughs> <laughs> These are not in the passages for today. Um, but in Psalm 88, God is accused of abandoning Israel. Right? Like right to God's face. Um, we'll come back to this um, in Holy Week because we'll read Psalm 22, which is the sort of famous psalm of abandonment that Jesus actually quotes from the, the cross. Right? But in Psalm 88, it says, O Lord, why do you cast me off? Why do you hide your face from me? Now, all of us, on my hunches, have felt that at some point. Like, why have you abandoned me? Where are you? But if you're like me, I'm hesitant to say that to God. Just a little bit hesitant to say that to God. It sounds, sounds irreverent, right, to accuse God of abandoning us. But if that's not sort of pushing the boundary, what about Psalm 44, where God is accused of falling asleep on the job? <laughs> right? Uh, try, try praying that prayer. Here's how the first couple lines go in, in 44, verse 23. This is addressed directly to God. Rouse yourself. Wake up. Why do you sleep, O Lord? Awake. Do not cast us off forever. Can you imagine telling God to wake up? Get with it? <laughs> Come on. Like, that, that can be the only explanation for our plight, is you must be asleep. You've called us your people. You said you're our God. Where the heck are you? Hello? It's not even daylight savings time. Like, where are you? What's your excuse? 
here's the important point that is the these laments by being directed to God even though they sound impolite even though they sound irreverent are in fact an act of faith precisely because they're directed to God right that's the part that's sometimes a little hard to see but it's so important if you don't hear anything else today hear that your willingness my willingness <coughs> to take our complaint, our lament, whatever it is we're feeling directly to God is an act of faith and trust in the relationship that we have. It's, it's not that dissimilar from our relationships with other people. It, it's an act of confidence and faith in a relationship in order when you're honest in that relationship and you can say things that are hard if you believe the relationship can handle it and you can speak the truth and you can be honest about how you're feeling you can be honest about what you see you can be honest about what's going on that's that's an act of faith and confidence and trust in the relationship that's very different than taking your lament, your complaint, to somebody else. Okay. Which is what I'm inclined to do in my friendships or other relationships, right? Is if things are not going well, I'll just find somebody else's ear to bend in order to get, you know, a little sympathy, you know? So I can complain and someone will say, oh, I just can't believe they did that to you. You poor thing. <laughs> right? I'm glad you're laughing because it makes me think I'm not the only one who's ever done that. That somehow you, you, you've, you've done that. Right? It's a very different thing. And what that does, what we all know is that that just stirs us up even more. Right? That doesn't bring relief. Not really. I mean, it brings a certain kind of relief because we feel like we're not alone. And also brings a kind of relief because we feel very justified in our whatever it is we're feeling. But it's very different to bring that rawness to the one who's most concerned about it, right? The, the one to whom your complaint isn't really addressed. And if our complaint really is to God, if our lament is really to God, then we need to feel the freedom to take that and to see that is an act of trust. It's not insulting to God. Uh, it's not, again, God knows we're feeling this, so it's not a surprise to God. No, um, we're not you know, encouraging God to cover God's ears like, oh, I can't believe they said that. Can, can we believe that God might actually want us to bring our rawest emotions to God? And the psalmist and the psalter seems to suggest the answer to that is yes. 
And so I just want, then during this series of lessons, to remind us that this, this is part of our scripture. This is part of our tradition. And at one level, it's, it's extraordinary. <coughs> it's extraordinary to have the freedom, that God has given us the freedom to bring all that we are, all that we're feeling, to God. So with that in mind, I want us to look for a few minutes at Psalm 6. The Psalter opens with a kind of wisdom psalm, um, but then Psalms 3 through 7 are laments. It's, it's fascinating that they, very early in the Psalter, just starts lamenting. We said last week that the Hebrew word for the book of Psalms is actually praises even though the majority of the psalms taken by themselves are not praises. And yet we also said last week that uh, almost all of them, and I'm sorry, I'm cutting in and out today. Hope you can still hear me. Yeah, never know whether to touch it or not. Um, that all the psalms, with the exception of two, all the laments, with the exception of two, move from complaint um, to lament to praise before they're done, at least moving towards praise. And as we said last week, not because the circumstances, the external circumstances have changed, right? It's not because the psalmist laments or complains to God and God in the psalm fixes it, and then you praise. That never happens in the psalms, not even once. But that somehow, in bringing it to God, vocalizing it, offering it to God, and, being, and, and trusting in that relationship itself begins to move us towards praise in a way that when I bring my complaint, my lament to another person, just makes me more furious, more indignant so often. So let's look at Psalm 6. It's a fairly short psalm. It's only 10 verses. I'm going to read the whole thing, then we'll go back through. I just want you to hear the whole thing and, and just kind of listen for the progression of addressing Yahweh, God, which you'll hear as the Lord, uh, five times it's going to be addressed, like right at the beginning. Lord, Lord, Lord. Then there's going to be a section where it, it focuses on me and my plight. And then it's going to move towards praising God, particularly in the way in which enemies are somehow thwarted. That's the progression. So here it goes. Psalm 6. O Lord, do not rebuke me in your anger or discipline me in your wrath. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. O Lord, heal me, for my bones are shaking with terror. My soul is struck with terror, while you, O Lord, how long? Turn, O Lord, save my life. 
Deliver me for the sake of your steadfast love. For in death there is no remembrance of you. In Sheol, who can give you praise? I am weary with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with my weeping. My eyes waste away because of grief. They grow weak because of all my foes. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. For the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. The Lord has heard my supplication. The Lord accepts my prayer. All my enemies shall be ashamed and struck with terror. They shall turn back and in a moment be put to shame. So it begins with this crying out to Yahweh, to the Lord. Do not rebuke me in your anger or discipline me in your wrath. Now the psalmist in Psalm 6 uh, doesn't specifically identify what the nature is of the suffering. Um, this is, and that's not unusual. Uh, part of the reason that the Psalms have been used for millennia is precisely because they're specific enough in the, the way that the pain is articulated and the suffering is articulated, but general enough about the specifics to feel like we can use them. And so we don't really know here. Um, it's, it's considered by the church to be a penitential psalm um, because it starts off with the exact same words as Psalm 38, which does talk about the source of the psalmist's anguish is actually his sin. Now notice it doesn't say that in this psalm. So we don't actually know that for sure. We don't know if he's anguished because of his own sin or if, like Job, his suffering has been put upon by God and he feels like he's being chastised by God. And the question is whether that's deserving or not. And all of that's left open here. We don't really know. But we do know that he's, he's deeply anguished. The psalmist is deeply anguished. And he's crying out to God, sensing that somehow uh, God is disciplined disciplining in him um, through what he's going through. Now the psalmist knows what the Old Testament writers knew and also what the New Testament writers are very clear about and that is that God doesn't punish us, discipline us uh, out of anger just to make a point um, or just out of anger. Um, those of you who've been parents know that that's one of the, the primary challenges you have with disciplining a child. How do you do that in a way that's not out of anger, uh, but hopefully for their good? Now, we always say that to them, and we hope it's true, right? Like, this is going to hurt me more than it's going to hurt you. And, 
and you've been on both ends of that, right? You've heard it and you've said it. Uh, and you're hoping it was more convincing when you said it than when you heard it. Okay. But scripture is very clear about that, that God's discipline, I mean, the, the writer of the book of Hebrews in the New Testament says that uh, God, God disciplines God's children. It's precisely because we're God's children that God corrects us for our good. And sometimes that means allowing uh, the consequences of our waywardness to be felt in our lives. Right? Not as punishment, but as, as a warning. Um, if we are straying from the path that leads to life, that is itself life. If God uh, calls us to, to walk a certain way because we will flourish more fully as human beings if we walk the way that God calls us, that this is for our good. God wants us to live fully human, beautiful lives. And if we begin to stray from that path, God wants us back on that path, not just so we can you know, get a pat on the head for being good children, but because this is a life that's fully flourishing. This is how we were designed, it's for our good. And so sometimes when we stray from the path, God allows us to reap the consequences as a kind of wake-up call, right, about our strain. And this is what the psalmist in 6, certainly in, in Psalm 38, but also maybe in, in chapter 6, is, is articulating and is asking that God might stop that process now um, that seems to, have had its, it seems to have had its effect. It has brought uh, the psalmist back to God, articulating to God um, that this is the case, that, that he's languishing uh, in his own waywardness. But he knows he doesn't deserve in any kind of strong way for God to stop or for God to be gracious. And so he, he begs for God's graciousness. Oh, be gracious to me, O oh Lord, for I am languishing. Heal me, for my bones are shaking with terror. My soul also is struck with terror. So it's not, so he, he seems to have some physical infirmity, some physical illness that seems to be the outpouring of God's chastisement. Again, we don't know what that was. Um, now, the Old Testament is very clear, and so is Jesus in the New, um, that there's no strict causal relationship between human illness and sin. It's important to say that. Not everyone who's ill is ill because of sin. Um, and Jesus is really clear about that in the New Testament. But it's also, it's also a debate that's going on in the Old Testament, as you know. Because there are some passages in Proverbs that makes it almost sound that way. That the righteous man will live a beautiful, flourishing life, and the evil man will have a horrible life. Um, but that's why the book of Job is in there. Right? The book of Job is actually trying to counter. It's counter wisdom. I don't know if anyone ever you taught that 
<coughs> Proverbs is a book of wisdom, and Job is a book of wisdom, and they're actually competing voices. The book of Job is written to say, you know, it's not that simple. You can't just look at the world and read off from people's health whether they're right with God or not. That's what Job's friends thought, right? Job's friends keep coming to him and saying, come on, Job, come clean. You wouldn't be having this miserable life if you hadn't done something. It's like, no, I really haven't. I really haven't. And so, but it's also true that sometimes we, we are capable of bringing on things ourselves. So it's not, it's not the case that that never happens, right? Um, I have, I've had some maladies in my own life that I am partly responsible for, right? Um, but it's not, it's not simple. It's not simple. And so we have to be very, very cautious there, both for ourselves and for other people. But he's not just languaging in body. He's also saying he's anguished in his soul. And he has this sort of plaintive cry there at the end of verse 3. And it's even more plaintive in the Hebrew because it's not a complete sentence. It's just this kind of broken sentence that says, And you, O Lord, how long? How long are you going to leave me in this state? Right. And that's a kind of if you read enough of the Psalms, you know, and so many of the laments, it's a, it's, that's a kind of, uh, sort of the deepest cry of the Psalter is this, how long? Again, I suspect that all of you, at least once in your life, probably more, have at least wondered that to yourself, even if you didn't know you had permission to say it out loud. How, how long? God, just, just how long are you going to let this go? And then the Psalter cries out to the Lord to turn. Right? And again, this is a kind of command. It's an imperative. It's pretty, pretty bold to tell God what to do. Right? But again, there's this boldness born of the confidence in the relationship that says, Oh Lord, turn, save my life, deliver me for the sake of your steadfast love. Deliver me for the sake of your steadfast love. And here it's, it's almost a kind of... Um, I don't know, you might call it a kind of veiled accusation. It says, steadfast love is that, uh, that Hebrew word that talks about covenantal love. This is the love born of the covenant, the promise that God has made to be the God of these people, and these people will be the people of this God. And so... The psalter, the, sal the psalmist is saying, now, we we've got a deal here. We've got a covenant. We've got this relationship. And so I need you to act on the basis of that relationship, on the basis of your steadfast love, born of this covenant. Save me. Turn. So Again, the, the assumption is that 
that maybe God has turned God's face away from the psalmist. It's like, turn, turn your face back to me. See me. See my anguish. See my plight. And, and save me for the sake of your steadfast love. And then the psalmist says something even more, uh, yeah, more bold if possible. In verse 5, the psalmist says, For in death there is no remembrance of you. In Sheol, who can give you praise? Now here the, the Psalter is saying something very Jewish. And that is the Jewish people, I mean, they really believed in this covenant. You have to kind of remember that uh, this is a small nomadic, originally nomadic people in the middle of nowhere. No one ever heard of them. In fact, they, they weren't a people until God made them a people. And yet they were the chosen people of Yahweh to bear witness to the rest of the world of who God was. And that they affirm that really all God needed of them, all God asked of them was their praise. That they would offer God praise and thanks for who God was, who this God was, and what God had done for them. And so the psalmist has this kind of, if, if it was a kind of, you know, veiled accusation about, hey, you're not keeping up your end of the covenant. How about you save me for your steadfast love? Here the, the Psalter says something even more bold and says, you know what? Um, you've called us as a people to praise you, but guess what? If I'm dead, I can't praise you. That's, that's pretty sneaky. <laughs> You know, in, in Sheol, uh, which was a Hebrew understanding of the a kind of abode of the dead, they were just shades. They were just shadows. Uh, they couldn't speak. They were mute. And so it's like, hey, you know, you called us to be your people. You called us to praise you, but no one praises you from Sheol. So if you don't intervene... Not only is it bad for me, but it, it looks like it's bad for you too. <laughs> right? It looks like we both lose on this deal. Again, that's pretty, talk about chutzpah. Um, most of us can't quite imagine that, but that's, that's really what the psalmist is saying. It's saying that you, you've got an interest, oh God, in saving your people, including me. Um, if you think this is a kind of one-off thing, go, go read the book of Joshua in the seventh chapter uh, where the, the children of Israel has just, have just had their first defeat and they're, uh, as they've come into Canaan and they're sort of licking their wounds thinking like, what the heck was that? Uh, we thought this was the promised land and we just got our tail kicked. And so Joshua sort of cries out to God and pretty much says, hey, you know what? Um, we're your people. And if the word gets out very far, 
that the Canaanites just kicked the tail of your people? Do you know, not only is our name going to be a, mock, uh, a mockery, your name, your name's going to be a mockery. Like, who can imagine saying that to God? Right? But the Jewish people, again, there's a reason we have the Jewish word chutzpah. Right? That's where it comes. These people have this re relationship with God that is extraordinary. And they're not afraid to bring it right to God. Not their neighbor, but to God. And that's what the author's saying here. And then after addressing God, the psalmist is just so honest and, and uses this poetic metaphorical language to talk about his languishing. I am weary with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with my weeping. My eyes waste away because of grief. They grow weak because of all my foes. Which is the first time the psalmist has mentioned any foes, any enemies. Just all of a sudden it's sort of like, whoa, where'd that come from? And again, we don't know. Um, but it's likely, if this is a Psalm of David, that, um, that people were, you, you know how people like to take advantage of vulnerable people. I don't know if you've noticed that in your life, that when you're vulnerable, I mean, sometimes your friends come to your side and you hope that they will, but sometimes when you're vulnerable, people take advantage of you. And so it seems like, just in Job's case, right, when he was most vulnerable, his, his friends, who were his friends, actually don't up, end up being his friends. <laughs> and, and here, it, there seems to be the psalmist that, that there, there are enemies. He, nails, he names them three different ways here in the last verses. My foes, workers of evil, enemies. We don't actually know who they are. But it's someone who's noticed his vulnerability in both body and soul and seems to be taking that opportunity for their own advantage. And it's interesting that the turn here towards praise at the end is actually rooted in sort of naming the confidence that the psalmist has that Yahweh will hear his prayer. And so because of that, those who are taking advantage of him should be gone. Like, go away. You know, hit the road because actually I know I look vulnerable, I know I'm languishing, I know I look weak in body and spirit, but God, God has heard my prayer. And so that's what he says. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. For the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. The Lord has heard my supplication. The Lord accepts my prayer. All my enemies shall be ashamed and struck with terror. They shall turn back and in a moment be put to shame. So in the same way that the, the psalm began with this sort of five-fold calling on the name of the Lord, it has this refrain of three times naming the Lord's going to hear my voice, my supplication, the Lord's going to accept my prayer. This deep confidence um, before the prayer's even over. 
that God will hear um, this deep and abiding trust in God's steadfast love. One of the things as we close that we should be reminded of during this season of Lent um, and as we are mindful in Lent of our own waywardness, our own sinfulness. You know, one, one of the, the gravest dangers of sin in our lives is that we can, we can come to believe that, or we can come to, we can come to believe that God, uh, because of our waywardness, because of our sinfulness, really has turned God's back on us and wants nothing to do with us. It can make, sin can make us doubt God's love for us. And that, that might be its greatest danger, honestly. And the Psalms of Lament, and particularly the penitential Psalms, are a reminder that, that rather than sin making us doubt God's love. What you hear in these words of the psalmist here in 6 and 38, go read 38 this week, um, which is sort of the parallel psalm to this one, is this deep sense uh, that precisely because of my waywardness and my sin, I need to lean on the grace and mercy and forgiveness of God, a God who desires that for me and for you more than I do? And so, to be able to come to God, um, whatever it is that we're wrestling with, whatever it is we're languishing it with, whether it's body, mind, soul, spirit, whatever it is that seems out of sorts, <coughs> that we can take all of that. Um, we don't have to wait um, till we think God is happy with us to come before God. Um, I don't know about you, but I can remember as a child um, in my, I don't know, 8 to 12 year old self, maybe even up to 14. Um, looking back, I think, I think my, I said this before, I think my father suffered from depression, but no one talked about it back then. So, um, he just seemed sad and sometimes angry. Um, and I, I can remember very explicitly thinking that if I wanted to ask him anything that would require him to do something for me, I should pick my points where he'd be in a good mood. Right? Because I was afraid if I said anything to him at any other time that it just wouldn't go well. Right? And I, and I worry that over time I, I came to think of God that way, right? That um, I, need to, I need to go before God when I think God's in a good mood. When God's not, you know, displeased with me. Um, but the truth of the matter is, I mean, that, that's not what God wants of us. Uh, God wants us to bring it all before God. Um, and maybe even especially the times when we feel most distant from God. 
that may be the time we most need to be assured that God really isn't distant, uh, that God is right there um, just waiting for us to reach out and acknowledge God's own goodness and mercy and graciousness to us. Let's pray. God of grace and mercy, we give you great thanks for these very bold psalms. We give you thanks that they have been uh, kept for us. They've been placed in your word to remind us that our deepest, rawest, most intense feelings and emotions can be, should be, brought before you. We give you thanks for that privilege and pray that that might be uh, comforting to us in those moments when we feel the intensity of our lives and so often feel so lost. May we feel your presence. May we lean into and trust the covenant that you have made to your people. And may we most especially be reminded during the season of Lent that you have gone to great lengths to deal with our own waywardness, our own sinfulness, precisely because you love us. May that bring comfort and a sense of boldness to come before you in the days ahead. We pray this through Christ.